Welcome, City Fam. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, if we haven't met. Glad you guys came. And, and you know, before we get started today, I just have to get something off, off my chest a little bit. What, what is up with kids' sports these days? Like, we're talking the little littles, you know. First of all, there's too many of them. Too many sports, uh, too many games, too many practices. But also, why does everything have to be so fair? I mean, everybody gets a dang trophy, for crying out loud. Like, what does a trophy even mean if everybody gets one? And in my day, maybe like you, I grew up in the 80s, it was probably the beginning of this, this wave of ridiculousness, right? Like where everybody got something. But in my day, I can remember playing baseball, we got like everybody, you didn't get first, second, or third, you got somewhere else. But everybody got this little trophy, but it was so small and plasticky and cheap, you know? Like you, you kind of understood what was going on. Or, or maybe you got a medal that, you know, the, the little plastic coin at the end weighed less than the actual ribbon it was hanging on, you know? It's almost like they were saying, you see how cheap this is? That's how good you did, right? Like we're, we're gonna save the real trophies for the real winners. I mean, what are we teaching our kids when losing effort gets winning results? And look, I get it, right? We don't want to hurt the kids' feelings and everything else. We're trying to build up their confidence. Um, but it kind of seems like in our culture today, everything revolves around feelings. You can't hurt people's feelings. You can't, you know, say something that someone else disagrees with. But, but in reality, and even in the kingdom of God, there are winners and there are losers. There are two sides, now and forever. <laughs> There's no such thing as fair, even in the kingdom of God. And, and as we're going to see today, there's no room for, for riding the fence. There's, there is no gray area. There is black and white. There's truth and there's a lie. There's no neutral. It's either one way or the other. And this is one of the reasons our church, our leadership has decided to teach scripture verse by verse. It's it's who we are. It's who we want to become. We want to be biblically serious people that know what the word of God says. We want you guys not to just come and listen and feel better about things, you know, and get some kind of inspirational uh, uh, message that kind of puffs you up. We want you to know what the word of God says. We want you to be able to, to, to hear and digest the word of God, to apply it to your lives. It's, not, it's, it's, it's important now more than ever. We live in a day and time where people are completely backwards. They think up is down, down is up. They think light is dark and dark is light. And so now more than ever, the people of God need to know what the truth is and that the truth only comes from the word of God, nowhere else. And so we are left with the decision each and every day do we want to trust God and his ways or not? Because as fair as it, as unfair as this might sound, we can either trust God in his ways and his word, or we can commit idolatry. And you might think, man, that, that's, that's kind of harsh. Yeah, yes, it is. Sometimes the truth is if we put ourselves in the place of God, that's exactly what we're doing. We're committing idolatry. We, as his followers, have to submit ourselves and our truth to his truth. So we're challenging you today to decide to not exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that starts with studying his word, knowing what it says. 
And we're in Luke again, right? We're, we're back in Luke. We've been in Luke for a little over a year now. And good news, I don't know if you're keeping track. Uh, I definitely am. But we're, we're over halfway through the book of Luke. That's a, it's a big deal. If you look at this Luke wall out here, there's six different panels. We're officially into the fourth panel, right? So we know that, we know that we're, we're about halfway, and I, I'm, I'm real excited about that. So let me kind of catch you up where we've been so far. We're in Luke 11. We're going to start in verse 14. But uh, last week, if you missed it, go, go check it out. Matt, uh, our youth pastor, talked about when the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray and all of that. There's this kind of tide turning here in, in Luke. There's a widening gap between Jesus and kind of the, the religious leaders of the day. And, and really, even now, the nation as a whole, all of Israel is kind of turning against Jesus. Uh, they've all heard the stories. They've seen the miracles. They've heard, they've heard the teaching. And they're kind of forced into this decision. Like, what, what are you going to do with this guy? Like, what are you going to do with Jesus? Do, do you believe who he says he is or, or don't you? And for the most part, most of them are answering that question and deciding to reject him. And as this opposition to him kind of builds and intensifies, Jesus gets more and more direct and confrontational with his teaching, his discussion. And he's starting to kind of warn those, like, listen, you're going to have to decide. And there, there's a right and there's a wrong. And so he, he does that in this, this chapter, chapter 11, verse 14. We're going to read it. If you have your Bible, uh, turn there. And if not, open your app up to message notes. All the, the scriptures are there, the points. Everything is there for you. Uh, I've asked Beth Gwynn to come read our scripture for us today. And yes, uh, she's my mom, not my sister, right? You're welcome. All right. Welcome, my mom. <laughs> All right. Wow, he, I don't know what he wants, but probably going to get it. Uh, okay, my name is Beth. I am married to Brandon's dad, Steve Gwynn. We have four kids. We have 10 grandkids and five great-grandkids. We have served as greeters here at the city and I have, or I'm part of a ministry group called Isaiah 58, and our group helped found what is called Project Destiny, that we worked real hard to protect the lives of the innocent, uh, of the unborn last year. And uh, we, our biggest thing is that we have a jail ministry, and we have church services every Saturday for the women who are incarcerated. And shout out to my favorite girls at LCDC. Okay. One day, this is verse 14. One day, Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed, but some of them said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others trying to test Jesus demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He knew their thoughts, so he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say I'm empowered by Satan, 
But if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And I am empowered, if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you've said. But if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. When an evil spirit leaves a person, if it goes into the desert, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds that its former home is all swept in an order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. So that person is worse off than before. As he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother. I love that part. The womb from whom you came and the breasts that nursed you. Jesus replied, and even, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Awesome. Thank you, Mom. Isn't she awesome, everybody? Yeah. There you go. Um, so, so here we see Jesus once again kind of supplementing his teaching with, with miracles. You know, visuals are, are a powerful tool. You've heard the saying that, that a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, these miracles like this, these, these, these pictures he's giving people, uh, they're, they're visual aids that kind of go along with his teaching, the message that he's trying to, to put out there. And, and yes, he's cast out demons before, but again, this, this is a big miracle. You know, Jesus doesn't do anything halfway. You know, when, when he heals someone, think about times he's healed someone that's, that's, that's covered in, in leprosy or something. It's, it's not a gradual healing. It's, it's instant. If he's healing the lame, they're, they're not having to relearn to walk. They're popping up and jumping and running and, and, and leaping for joy. The same with this guy. The, the demon is cast out of this guy, and then he, he uh, instantly can speak. He doesn't have to relearn. <laughs> To speak, No doubt he was using his words, his voice to sing praises to God. But, but here's what's interesting about all this. You have all of these people following him, starting to get a little bit skeptical, unbelieving people. They try to start shooting holes in his, his message, not just his message, but also in his miracles. And, and they're, they're smart enough to know not to, to argue that the miracle is somehow fake, right? They, they can't dispute what they're seeing with their own eyes. This stuff is, is really happening. So they, they've got to argue instead that he's doing it through the power of Satan. Jesus, they're saying, is colluding with the enemy, with Satan. The very first collusion scandal on our hands right here, right? CNN would have been all over it. But it wasn't, it wasn't true. He, he wasn't in cahoots with anybody. And he, he tells them exactly why. See, see, 
They couldn't deny the miracle because that would mean they would have to admit to themselves that maybe Jesus is who he says that he was. That they couldn't just accept that. So they had to tear it down. They just couldn't bring themselves to give him credit. And can you imagine a more blasphemous accusation than this one? He's doing these miracles by the power of Satan. In the original Hebrew, they used the the name Beelzebub, which that name alone was just absolutely vile to to, to a Christian. This this name commonly given to Satan, it just represents everything evil in the world, everything that is anti-God. So they have, you have them calling the the most holy one, this, this God in a body, the Messiah, they're calling the most holy one wicked and evil. They're calling this this body of of incarnate truth a liar. And they've branded the son of God a servant of Satan. I mean, it was absolutely offensive. And it was also ridiculous, just illogical. They, they, They taunt Jesus. They try to get him to do maybe a bit bigger miracle. Hey, do, do, do another more grand miracle than maybe we'll believe what you're saying. And Jesus is like, ah, no thanks. I'm, I'm good because, because he knew their thoughts already. In fact, it tells us that in verse 17. He knew their thoughts. I, I mean, this was an unfair fight from the start, right? I mean, can you imagine like having this power like in a fight with your spouse, like to know their thoughts? Are you kidding me? You talk about a game changer. I mean, let's be honest, guys, we probably don't know, we don't want to know our wife's thoughts. We'll just end up feeling a lot worse about ourselves, right? We don't need to know what's going on in there. Probably wouldn't even understand it to begin with. All right, so they're, but their, their thought processes, the, the, the purpose, their, their whole purpose in questioning Jesus, he, he's on to them. And again, it's sinful, it's blasphemous, it has to be offensive to the, the holiness of God. And he had every right at this point to just kind of abandon them to, to their, their doom. But as we see over and over again with Jesus, he's, he's compassionate. He has mercy on them, and he instead tries to reason with them. And he gives them perfect logic. That's why Jesus is so awesome. He's not just theological, right? He, he has perfect logic here, and he gives it to them. In, in verse 17, he knew their thoughts. So he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? He's saying this whole argument is stupid, right? He raises this this argument of a house divided against itself. You've heard that saying before. Well, this is where it comes from. A divided kingdom can't stand. He, He argues that it's kind of dumb to think that Satan would empower someone else with one of his demons to kind of fight against himself, to, to undo his own work. Jesus is saying, listen, if, if I'm controlled by the devil, I'm also undermining him. So, so what sense does that make? It's both illogical and inconsistent. It's illogical to think that Satan would, again, war against himself, but it's inconsistent because of what he says in verse 19. He says, and if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too. So well, you can, uh, so, so they will condemn you for what you have said. He's saying, listen, if it's true of me, it's also true of them. If I'm casting out by Satan, then, then you, you've got to question their methods as well. He's exposing their inconsistency, their hypocrisy, their lack of 
integrity. And, and even beyond that, he, he's saying this a little, a little deeper meaning here. He's kind of, kind of poking at them here because ultimately what they're saying, if their own exorcists, who, by the way, sometimes fail in exercising a demon, if they're, his own exorcists are working from God, but Jesus, who's always successful in his casting out of demons, is working through Satan, really what they're saying, in effect, is that Satan is more powerful than God. Another blasphemous accusation. Verse 20, but if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. He's saying, listen, if you're wrong, and if I'm not doing this by by the power of Satan, but if I'm indeed doing it through the, the power of God, this means the kingdom is here. God's kingdom has come. The things that I've been saying are absolutely true. He's kind of, again, confronting them with the truth that they've been resistant to. He's saying, listen, you're in the presence of the king, like the Messiah is here. This God they proclaim to follow and have devoted their lives to, this, is, this man standing in front of them, Jesus, is God in a body. God, they're standing face to face with the Messiah. And it's funny because they can't see it. They consider themselves to be this enlightened, religiously elite kind of group. But, but they're so blindsided by the self-righteousness and, and their pridefulness and their hard-heartedness that they can't see the kingdom of God is there. It's happening. It's right in front of them. They can't see that it's not Jesus that's an agent of Satan. It's actually themselves. They're on the losing side and they can't see it. The original text doesn't necessarily talk about the power of God. It phrases it this way, the finger of God. It uses this phrase finger of God to describe the power he's using to cast these demons out. So what Jesus is doing here, he's calling way back to their history. Back to the days of, of Moses and the, the, the slavery of the Israelites. And these people, his audience, would have known exactly what he was saying. Do you remember? Moses is, is trying to get Pharaoh to let the people go. And God starts doing all of these miracles through Moses and all of these signs and wonders. And you have this dramatic scene right before Pharaoh lets them go. God, through Moses, confronts Pharaoh's false magicians. You remember, he had his own kind of magicians, and they were able to kind of recreate some of these, these, um, these miracles through some, some trickery. But then, when Moses struck the dust with his staff and produced swarms of gnats, they were unable to duplicate it, and they were forced to acknowledge, listen to what they said, these magicians of Pharaoh's. They said, this is the finger of God. So he's saying, in effect, that was the finger of God. This is the finger of God. And that was right before Moses, you know, he then leads his people out of slavery. And it's like Jesus is saying, I'm about to do the same thing. Lead all of mankind out of the slavery to sin and death. Verse 21. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe, until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. What's he talking about here? Well, the strong man is Satan, our enemy, the devil. He, he's the strong man. But Jesus is saying that he, Jesus is saying, I'm the stronger man. Satan may be strong, but I'm stronger. 
And he had already started kind of plundering Satan's kingdom by, by transferring people from Satan's kingdom to the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm not colluding with anybody here. I, I've put a beat down on, on Satan and I'm taking all his stuff. And it's happening right here under your noses. Jesus has overcome the, the presence of and the power of evil in the world. His power is greater than Satan's power. His power is greater than that of the demons. So much so that his power and authority can actually reverse the effects of sin itself. So, so here, here's kind of the, the, the cosmic war that's going on, like the, the battle. Satan and Jesus kind of standing toe to toe. And all of these miracles are getting a visual aid that, that points straight to Satan's loss, like his ultimate defeat. Yes, Satan can do some, some damage as any enemy can, but the end is written. He will lose. And he's already started losing. Jesus is, is just undoing the works of Satan. And it's this the other uh, translations back to the, the original text. They talk about binding the binding of this strong man by the stronger man. And this binding is kind of happening in three different stages. The first stage is what we're seeing right here. During Jesus' ministry, he starts binding the strong man by. There, there are six different accounts of Jesus casting demons out of people. This is where that, that binding begins, him proving that his kingdom is more powerful. He is more powerful than Satan. He's the stronger man. Then the second stage was, was coming just around the corner, a matter of months away, his death and resurrection, guaranteeing the binding, the, the loss of Satan. Colossians 2.15 says that he made a spectacle of the whipping of demons. He put it on display. And then finally, the third stage is yet to come, the millennial kingdom, Satan bound for a thousand years. The end is written. Jesus is saying in front of everybody, listen, Satan has been whipped and I'm just getting started. Then he lays it down in verse 23. He says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Very clear and bold language, especially saying this to people who are obviously against him. He's saying, when it comes to me, when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutrality. There's no halfway. There's no a little in, little out. There, there's, you're either for him or you're against him. In this war between God and Satan, between heaven and hell, good and evil, truth and lie, there, there, there is no neutral. There are no shades of gray. We sometimes picture Jesus, you know, like he just kind of floated around everywhere he went and everybody just loved him and he was so nice to everybody, you know. But that couldn't be further than the truth. Actually, in actuality, Jesus is one of the most polarizing figures in all of history. He either sparked like this, this undying, unwavering devotion to himself or absolute Hatred, where these people that once followed him around and praised him for everything he did and were just in awe of him, eventually would be the ones to yell, crucify him. You're either in or you're out. Two groups of people. It's true today. Those who are with Christ and those who are against him. Those who are gods and those who are Satan's. 
Those who are in the kingdom of light and those who are in the kingdom of darkness, who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. You have the saints and the ain'ts. There are winners and losers. There are sheep and there are goats. And one day we will all stand before God's throne of judgment. And you're going to be in one group or the next. And we don't get to decide what makes us a winner or a loser. He set that out in his word. Everyone lives and dies in one of those two groups which have distinct and opposite eternal consequences. Those who don't believe in Jesus, receive him, follow him with all their heart, join in his, his mission to make disciples or as much in partnership with the devil as those who openly worship Satan. Let me say that again. People, even good moral people that aren't fully surrendered to Jesus, following Jesus, are in much as much in Satan's camp as Satan worshipers are. Because the end result's the same. Eternity separated from him. You might say, well, that's not fair, right? The good people don't deserve hell. That there, there are good people in, in every false religion in the world. Everyone should get a trophy, right? That's not his truth. In the kingdom of God, there are no participation trophies. It's either Jesus or Satan. You're either all in or you're all out. This is the problem with our culture today. See, people view truth as, as anything but black and white. There are thousands of shades of gray, right? These philosophies and other theories, ideas, religions, they're kind of seen as competing on this equal playing field to Christianity. It's, it's just one, one, of the, one of the ones, right? And they could all have some truth in them. But there's no one that's absolute or, or exclusively true. Our culture says there is no absolute truth, only my truth. And it's not just my truth. It has to be your truth too. Because you have to not only respect it, but accept it. And you have to not only accept it, but celebrate it. In fact, the, the survey Clayton mentioned a couple of weeks ago where, you know, on almost every point of the faith and, and truth from Scripture, Christians, evangelical Christians, however they define that, in every category are moving in the wrong direction. Fewer and fewer Christians really believing that God's word is ultimate truth. So again, I say we, we have a decision to make today. You have a choice. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with his, his truth? Are you going to build your life on his truth or yours? Because you can't have it both ways. To build your life on you, on your truth, on your ideas, on your ways is, again, that's idolatry. That's putting yourself in the God seat. So Jesus kind of drives home the point even further. Verse 24, when the evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I will return to the person I came from so it returns and finds that its former home is all swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person 
and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. What, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, there's, there's two different possibilities here. One is that Jesus is describing literally what happens to someone who has been possessed by a demon after they're delivered from that demon. If the person doesn't ask God to come in and take control, they're going to end up worse off than they were before. He, he may be talking literally, but another possibility is Jesus is kind of using this metaphorically to, to speak to the nation of Israel and by extension to us. Because see, Jesus was right there among them. He, he, was, he was knocking on the door of Israel and Israel wanted nothing to do with him. They rejected him. They instead chose religion and, and what we call moralism. See, in this picture, God, God, Jesus is painting here with the, the house that's swept up and clean. He's describing probably a very religious man, somebody that had cleaned up his life, that was trying to do all the right things, that he was swept clean, good behavior. But the problem with a moral person's heart is that while it might be superficially cleaned up and put in order, there's a void there. There's something missing. It's missing the true spiritual power and righteousness that only comes through this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives. So he's missing the saving gospel of, of Jesus, setting that aside for a different, weaker, non-saving message. Albert Moeller defines moralism as the belief that the gospel can be reduced into improvements in behavior. Don't we all kind of slip into that way of thinking from time to time? Re reducing the power of the gospel into simply doing better, less bad behaviors, more good behaviors, external, superficial efforts, that, that's, that's self-reformation. What that leads you to is it puts you in a dangerous position, right? Because it can lead to this delusion that you're on a solid ground when it comes to your relationship with God. You feel good about it. And you assume dangerously, falsely, that you and God are good, that you're in right standing with him. Jesus is saying with this guy, this, this was his perspective. But there was a spiritual vacuum that was, that was created there. There's something missing. There was an emptiness there. Dr. Moeller goes on to say this, moralism promises the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to sinners if they will only behave and commit themselves to moral improvement. But we sin against Christ and we misrepresent the gospel when we suggest to sinners that what God demands of them is moral improvement in accordance with the law. Moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved, but the gospel of Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God. It's not about morality. It's not about just mere religious practices. You see, these are seductive. We, we all have that. We all slide that direction if we're not careful. And it's deadly because they have no power to change your heart. But again, it can deceive you into thinking that you're right with God. Guys, this is a dangerous place to live your life. And I would contend that our churches in America are full of people in this category. 
They, they have this intellectual believing. Yeah, I believe Jesus lived. I believe he died for my sins, but there has been no surrender. They're not following him. They, they've, they've kind of, you know, duped themselves into believing that they're right with God because they, they check off some kind of religious list. You can't do better or try harder your way into being right with God. It's impossible. We can't do that ourselves. And so again, I ask you, like the crowds watching these miracles, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to reject him? Are you going to submit to him? You can't take care of your sin problem yourself. You know, God is holy. We can't have a relationship with him if we're full of sin. That's why he, he gave us the law to show us our own sinfulness. All of us are completely powerless to always do all the right things. There's only been one sinless person that's ever lived, and that was Jesus. And that's the reason he came. Because he lived that perfect life we can't possibly live. And then he died the death we deserve to die so that we might have the opportunity to look to him, put our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins because he paid our penalty, he paid our fine. He is the bridge between us and our heavenly father. So whether or not you know, you, you've believed in him your whole life or been in church your whole life or whatever, are you following him? Have you surrendered your life to him, Do you have a relationship with God or don't you? It's one or the other. And, and I implore you today, if, if you're one that you're not sure, and we talk, about, we talk about that standing before God's throne of judgment and him saying either, well done, good or faithful servant, or depart from me, I don't know you. When you hear that, it absolutely terrifies you. Listen, you might need to, to answer this question today. This is, this is the one question in life you have to get right. If there's never been a time in your life where you submitted to Jesus, today is your day. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Put your faith in Jesus. Begin a relationship with him. If you're doing that today, we want to know about it. We'd love to help you in your Walk with Jesus, disciple. You want to talk about next steps in your relationship with him, get you plugged into a small group, all of that. Just can't do it if you don't let us know. So if you let us know on the app, our connect form, uh, we'll be in touch with you. We'd love to, to walk with you in this new relationship with Jesus. If you go his way, you win in the end. There are no participation trophies. Verse 27. As we finish here, he was speaking, as he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came and the breasts that nursed you. It's kind of an awkward thing to say in public to somebody, isn't it? <laughs> Try that at your next family dinner, you know, if you're, that'd be awesome. Jesus replied, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. See, he's, he's telling this woman, listen, what you're saying is true, right? This was the ultimate compliment in those days. A mother was, was val seen as, as valued if, if their kids accomplished something. He's saying your statement's correct, but it's not complete. 
It's not just about admiring Jesus. It's not just about commending him. He goes even further and says, listen, that's all great, but it's about obedience. It comes down to obedience. A true follower of Jesus is first and foremost obedient. James, the brother of Jesus said in in chapter one of, of the book of James, don't just be a hearer. Be a doer. If you just hear the word of God and and never do anything about it, never put it into practice, you're deceiving yourself. You're a fool. And then in Matthew 7, Jesus himself says, if you love me, you'll obey what I say. And we hear that backwards sometimes. Oh, well, I have to do all these things to prove that I love. No, he's saying, if you truly love me, if you're truly submitted to me, there will be evidence in your life in the form of obedience. You know, faith without work, there's going to be some works that go along with your faith, or maybe there's no faith at all. Attending church, singing songs, and having those warm, fuzzy feelings, and maybe wonderful memories, this nostalgia of things when you're a kid in church or whatever, it's all great, but it's not enough. Jesus is calling us to more, to be fully and wholly surrendered to him. So what can we take away from this today? Here's the first one. The enemy is defeated. The enemy is defeated. It's done. It's over. Like the end is written. Now Satan, he he might have a long chain, but he's still chained. You know, this demonic stuff, this demonic activity, you know, it's the spiritual world. It's, it's all real. It can be scary. We don't know what to do with it. But, but listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, his spirit lives inside of you. You have the stronger man. What can Satan do to you? Why would we fear Satan, John, uh, 1 John chapter 4 says, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won the victory over these people. Because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. He that is in you is greater than he is in the world. Jesus is the stronger man. No matter what situation you face in life, he's the stronger man and he lives in you. What is your greatest fear in your life? What do you lose sleep over? Maybe it's fear of a failure or a lack of finances or relationships or, you know, the, the, just the health and safety of your kids, fear of death, whatever it is, what is, what in your life is robbing you of peace and joy? One thing we know, fear doesn't come from God, but is a powerful tool for our enemy. How much peace and joy has Satan stolen from you through fear? Is there something you're holding on to, something you refuse to to surrender to him? Jesus is the stronger man. What have we to fear? Not even death itself, to be absent in our bodies is to be present with him. What can he take from us? Finally, all of us, we can either bow up or can bow down. Two choices. 
And we, we have that decision to make every single day of our lives in every situation. We're gonna bow up or we're gonna bow down to him. We're gonna resist him and go our own way or are we gonna submit and surrender to him? These Pharisees, they, they heard and saw the miracles and the teaching, but they refused to submit to him. There is no neutrality. There is no fence riding. There's no have your cake and eat it too. There's no my truth or your truth or culture's truth. There is only the truth that comes from God's word, period. And this is what we want our lives, our families, our marriages, our churches to be built on. The truth of God's word. But the truth is we're all tempted to do what the crowds did, you know, to go our own way, to choose our own thoughts and beliefs, our own version of, of the truth, our own intellect, our, our own trouble, you know, solving, problem solving skills. We'll figure it out like we know better. You know, sometimes what Jesus says is difficult. And somehow we've gotten this thought in our head that Jesus just wants us to be happy and wants our lives to be easy. You know, following Jesus should be easy, right? I don't see that anywhere in scripture. So whose truth are we believing? We can trust God in his ways and his word or we can commit idolatry. Don't trade the truth for a lie. I talked to our city youth yesterday morning, you know, they had their, you saw the recap video of their, the weekend, their youth conference. I talked to them about Josiah, who was king of Judah 600 and something years before Jesus. And his dad and granddad were wicked, wicked kings and led the people so far away from God. And Josiah becomes king and he finds some ancient writings and the covenant of the Lord and he completely turns things around. I mean, a complete 180. Tears down all the idols, gets rid of all the, the crooked priests and said, no, we're, we're coming back to God. The, the kicker here is Josiah was eight years old. Eight. So my point to the, the, the students yesterday was, listen, there was nothing special about Josiah. If anything, he, he, he had, you know, he had the, the, the deck stacked against him if he was going to be a faithful king because all he'd ever known is unfaithfulness. All, Josiah, all that set him apart from his, his dad, his granddad, all the other wicked kings was that he was obedient to God. That's it. He was obedient. And he completely rewrote his family tree. And now he's listed in the genealogy of Jesus. I told them, whatever age you are, 12, 13, whatever, like start now. Follow Jesus now. Make decisions now to, to take your faith seriously, to walk with him. If, because I told them this, something I know, something probably you know from experience, it only gets more difficult as you get older. As your problems get more complex, you know, as you, you, you get smarter, it only gets more difficult to surrender to him. Some of you know that all too well. You're still doing things your own way. So my question for you is like it was for them. Do you want to be used by God or don't you? Do you want to know his, his will for your life or don't you? Do you want to go his way or do you want to keep doing things your own way? 
coming up into the same brick wall each and every time. Would you bow your heads as we kind of wrap things up? I just want to encourage you to to just be before God just completely open and honest. You might think that you can fool him, but you can't. He knows your thoughts. He knows your fears. What are the sources of fear in your life that are, that are robbing you of joy and peace? Are there areas in your life where, where you've insisted on your way, your truth, your preferences over God's truth? What, what are some of the idols in your life that need to be torn down? Are there things in your life that you refused to surrender to him. And again, we don't want to be just here. Just ask God, what do I need to do? How can I put this into practice? What do I need to cut out of my life? What do I need to add to my life? God, give us, give us a handle here. Give us something that we can go and put into practice. The answer lies in you, in your way. So I pray that you would just speak to our hearts as we, as we sing and, and worship you, God, that we would all face that question head on. What are we gonna do with Jesus? Are we gonna submit to him? Are we gonna bow up? Are we gonna bow down? God, we're gonna bow down to you. We're gonna surrender. We're gonna submit because your ways are better. Your ways are higher. And yours is the only truth. It's one thing to get all stirred up emotionally and, and, and get contemplative or whatever, but God, we don't want it to end there. We want change. God, change our minds, change our priorities, that we would back up just not with word, but action. Because ultimately, God, we want to win in the end. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.